we'll read here the foundation of the gospel and then that call to live out our lives in light of that glorious gospel. So 1 Peter chapter 2, begin, beginning now at verse 21. Congregation, hear the word of the Lord. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were sheep, you were like strained, strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they might be won without a word by their conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and perfect word. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, the psalmist wrote that the ordinances of the Lord are flawless and sure, that your word more precious than gold and sweeter than honey from the comb. Lord God, may your words flow over us today. May they be sweet to our ears. Give your servant wisdom and clarity of words to proclaim with power your message to us today. Open our ears and hearts so that we may receive your message to us. We ask these things not because we are worthy. We ask them in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as Peter wrote this letter, he was writing it to the churches in Asia Minor, what he called the elect exiles of the dispersion, those in Asia Minor who found themselves living as strangers in their own towns, their jobs, and now we read here some even in their own homes. They have been ransomed from their feudal ways by the blood of Christ, according to chapter 1, verse 18. And these exiles are no longer looking to themselves as Lord's, Lord Day, Lord's Day 1 of the Heidelberg Catechism says, but they belong in body and soul and life and in death to their faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And now he calls them to be holy and set apart, even as they remain an integral part in their community and in their homes. These exiles found that in the way that they are now called to conduct themselves in public, they're strangers 
They find that in the way that they're called to submit to the rule of the emperor and the governors of the land, they are strangers. And the way that they are to endure the supervision of even a harsh supervisor, a boss, they're strangers, they're different than the world. And now in our passage this morning, we find that even in their own homes, many believers find themselves to be a type of a stranger. I recently read a story about a 101-year-old man who came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. His name was George. He had married his, he had married his wife, Lou, later in their lives. He was an unbelieving Jew, and she had become a Baptist after they had been married. He attended his wife's church for a few decades with her, and he had asked her question from time to time, but he didn't seem too interested in her faith. But she was patient with him. She respected him. She would answer his questions. She would listen to him. She loved him with gentleness and with tenderness. And her generosity and love actually had a gradual effect on him as his questions about the Christian faith became more and more pressing, more and more frequent. We praise the Lord that eventually he was converted by the Spirit's power and he was baptized and professed his faith in Christ. So it was important for us to remember that even as wives and husbands sometimes feel like exiles in their own homes, they're never alone, for the Holy Spirit is with them. The Spirit of Christ is with them. They follow in the footsteps of the one who blazed that trail of suffering and loneliness with them, one who is very familiar with suffering. As Peter reminded us, Christ, the one who is truly cut off and truly exiled, who was a stranger in his own land. He bore his sins on the tree, as our passage says. And he healed us by his wounds. And he returned us who were strained sheep to himself, that good and gracious shepherd, 2 verse 24. And so as we are steeping the knowledge of that good news as we wrestle with it, as we internalize it, wives and husbands, families, singles, we can all stand firm and we can serve the Lord through our marriages by living out the reality of our marriage to none other than Christ himself. So that's our theme this morning. Serve the Lord through your marriage by living out your marriage to Christ. And very simply, we'll trace this out in two points. To serve the Lord as a Christian wife, firstly, and secondly, to serve the Lord as a Christian husband. Serve the Lord as a Christian wife, Serve the Lord as a Christian husband, whether that be now or whether these words come to us as what we ought to aspire to be, whether we want to one day be married. Well, first, being a Christian wife and serving the Lord through this. Being a Christian wife means something different than being a worldly wife, does it not? It's not the same. Peter says in verses 1 and 2 of our text, he says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. You see, submission as a concept for those in the Roman Empire, that the context into which this letter came, it wasn't something foreign. It wasn't unfamiliar. They would know the word submission but submission had a very different con- had had very different content, and it was severely misunderstood. Just as that word today is often misunderstood, even 
in our, our world and even in our own Christian context sometimes. Submission for a wife in Asia Minor, which was north of Israel and east of Greece on the map, meant that a woman was, to, was expected not to have any friends outside of her husband, that she was called to worship the gods of her husband. Wives were seen as no more than property of their husbands. They were trophies. They were status symbols. And so simply put, submission for a wife in this context, in a worldly context then, meant that she was supposed to be meeting her husband's desires and whims unconditionally. And of course, this is not different from the way our world has, the world has always seen marriage. In the book of Esther, King Ahasuerus banished Queen Vashti from the kingdom when she refused to be hung out like a piece of meat before his subjects. The people of God have often fallen into a similar trap. King Solomon, the chief among many people, was led astray by his political marriages. He adopted the theology and practices of many false religions because of the women that he married. And marriage was not taken very seriously even in the Jewish context of Paul's day. Rabbinical teaching in Peter's day permitted husbands to divorce their wives for a host of very unbiblical reasons. And so we see that the more the times change, really, the times have remained the same. We live in a culture which hates the term submission. Ironically, however, as women have supposedly been freed from that iron yoke of submission, they've been saddled with the iron yoke of sexual objectification. They've been saddled with the yoke of disrespect and abuse of many shades, shapes, and sizes. Many so-called free women sadly live in bondage as objects for men's lust and for gratification. But why? Why is this? If they've been freed from this supposedly terrible concept of submission, how are they still in bondage? Well, congregation, it's because a fleshly view of submission is, it is always self-centered. It goes, I'm independent, they think. I don't need to submit to anyone. I'm my own person, finally. And not to mention, why would anyone want to submit to someone who only wants to use you anyways? This is because submission to a husband without first submitting to Christ always is an unbearable burden. Submission to a man without first submitting to Christ contains no goal. There's no purpose in it. There's no hope. There's no reason as a foundation for it. But Peter offers a much better pattern. Peter gives us a good reason for submission. As those whose primary relationship is that vertical relationship with Christ, their suffering Savior, when that's the foundation, when that is primary, Christian wives can patiently live with their unbelieving husbands, those who at this time, who do not obey the word as our text says. And why do this? Why? So that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. Chapter 3, verse 1. And certainly we can apply this logic to believing husbands who all of us find ourselves acting in unbelieving ways. Every one of us here as husbands has, has done that. And so we, we need this conduct of our lives to help to grow us in Christ. 
Christian wives serve the Lord by embodying the gospel for the sake of their husbands. They do this in service to the Lord who has that primary relationship with them. So again, this is the position that many Christian wives in Asia Minor might have found themselves. Converted to the Christian faith after they were married. And so Peter's not condoning intentionally marrying outside the faith or so-called evangelistic datings. And I speak especially to the young people there. That's not at all what Peter's saying. He's not suggesting that we seek out or are okay with dating outside of the faith. Though he's talking about a very specific situation where people came to faith later in life. If we believe in evangelistic dating, then we go directly against Paul's admonition in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So the question arose for these these women who came to faith after marriage. Can I or should I divorce my unbelieving husband? Well, the answer is no. And this is said assuming there are no biblical grounds for divorce. It's said of a husband who remains faithful to his wife, even as an unbeliever. But again, this is, nor is this a call for a wife to be a doormat, to be walked all over by her husband but for her to live as a helpmate, as a support, as an encouragement for her spouse. The root of submission is to consider the needs of her husband above her own needs, as Christ has done for her. Well, husbands, we are called to love and provide for our wives as Christ has loved and provided for the church. We do this in order to aid the gospel. To remove any stumbling block that may remain in front of the gospel to its reception. And so the funny thing is, is that a wife, as a Christian wife, seeks to be a faithful and a pure example to her husband. As she strives to be respectful of her husband, even if he doesn't affirm it. She is actually exhibiting more freedom than the world can. She's exhibiting her freedom in Christ. Instead of giving in to to nagging or irritating a husband, she makes that choice, a free choice, to die to sin and to live to righteousness, as we read in 1 Peter 2, verse 24. She's dying to herself and living to Christ, the one who has redeemed her. And so praise the Lord as as a wife dies to sin and as she lives in righteousness, that the Lord is pleased to draw her husband along with her. What a joy that is. And so Christian submission is never suppression. Is submitting to the easy yoke of Christ suppressive or oppressive? Never. Far from it. Even though it's never easy. No. It's giving up of yourself in service of your Savior who gave himself up for you. And so as you hear this, perhaps you may yawn and wonder to yourself, well, this is true, But most of our people are in marriages where both husband and wife are believers. So what does this passage say to me? Well, first of all, I think that we often underestimate the power of unbelief, even in our own Christian circles. When we close our eyes to it, then the devil grabs a foothold. And secondly, husbands, if we're honest with the Lord, with our wives, and with ourselves, how often do you and I act very out of step with our profession of faith? How often do we act as an unbelieving husband, even though we are believing? 
I ran into something like this a little while back. We were having a difficult day at home, and my wife was tired, and I was tired, and the kids were out of sorts. So as one child acted out, I, I erupted into one of those, how many times have I had to tell you, type spiels. As my daughter walked away crying, I could hear my wife saying to her what Daddy was trying to say. And as soon as I heard her say that I was cut down to my knees, I knew that I was wrong. I knew that I was acting out of step with that profession of faith. I had failed in my duty as a husband and a father. And at that moment, by my wife's pure and respectful conduct, I was called back to repentance. So what we're talking about here is the embodiment of the gospel. Peter says in verses 3 and 4 of our passage the following. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold or jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And so that, once again, we see that that foundation for the horizontal relationship with husband is rooted in that vertical relationship with God. He sees that heart. He sees that inner person, which... which which we as people cannot. We see this again exemplified with the way the Lord called King David in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. The Lord says to Samuel, For I, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at what? He looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. And so the questions are not necessarily debates about what kind of jewelry we wear or, or makeup. But it's a question, does our outward appearance match how God sees us? Does it complement the heart, or does it try to cover up the heart? This passage is, again, it's not a blanket statement for all times about what kind of hairstyles we should have, whether gold rings should be worn or nice dresses should be purchased. No, the point here is that true beauty does not lie in these external things. They are nice, and God certainly does affirm beauty, but it originates with him. These outward adornments will not be what wins a husband's heart in the end. In the Roman Empire, many cosmetics were worn as a means of deception. So again, are we different? Men and women, do we wear certain things to project something that we're not? Or are we wearing things to show who we are inside? Again, it is godly to take care of ourselves and our appearance. It's good. The Bible makes this very clear. In Proverbs 31, that, that Proverbs 31 description of the woman of noble character, Solomon says that her clothing is fine linen and it's purple. She wears beautiful clothing. There's nothing wrong with that. But that outward beauty is consistent with and it's a reflection of her inner beauty. And she draws it from her relationship. With Christ. Beauty is from God. Beauty itself is rooted in the character of God. And our appearance ought to be in tune with our inner person, which God says is precious in His sight. It's very precious. Again, that doesn't, this doesn't come easy, does it? Being subject to your own husband, offering that respectful and pure conduct doesn't come naturally to us. Offering that gentle spirit doesn't come naturally. And so we need that regenerating power of the Holy Spirit to come. 
When the Lord looks upon a dear woman who feels exiled even in her own marriage, remember that he says, mine. He says, precious in my sight. So at the end of the day, that needs to be where your hope lies. That needs to be that foundation where you find your motivation for respecting and loving your husband. That needs to be the goal that we seek as singles to how we ought to live for a future husband. That ought to be the the example that we seek to set as parents for our children that they too, as we read earlier in the service, from generation to generation. So Peter proves this point by putting before us the example of Sarah, that wife of Abraham. She could look at Abraham and call him Lord with a small l, a sign of her submission, a sign of her respect for him. Why could she say that? Because she was first submitting herself to the Lord. She was first had that relationship with the Lord who was providing for her. So Abraham was secondary to the Lord himself. And that calling of a Christian wife has, comes in the line of many women of faith who came before her. A Christian wife is joined to a great cloud of witnesses. God's promises were true in times past, and they've been fulfilled in the bridegroom of the church, Jesus Christ. And that's the reality that you and I find ourselves in today, a glorious reality. The son that Sarah had hoped for has come, and he's redeemed his bride, and he's freed her from her sins. So therefore, Christian wives, you do not need to live in fear. Even in less than ideal earthly marriage, whether to an unbelieving husband or a deeply flawed Christian husband. So unbelieving husbands and even the imperfect believing husbands are overshadowed by your relationship with your heavenly husband. The heavenly husband who counts you as precious in his sight. The one who has made you a co-heir of the grace of life. He bore your failings and imperfections on the cross and his love never fails. There is no reason for fear in his presence. But Paul doesn't just lay the burden on Christian wives. He also lays the burden on Christian husbands. He calls them to serve the Lord as well. As Christian wives serve the Lord, so also we as husbands are called to serve the Lord through our marriages. We're called to see in our parents, in our congregation, examples of what this looks like as singles. We're we're called to pursue this relationship with Christ so that one day we may pursue that relationship with a daughter of God and a sister of Christ. And so husbands, the question comes before us. We're laid out with a dilemma. We can either hinder our wives' service to the Lord, make that difficult for them, or we can honor her and aid her in that holy task given by Christ himself. Peter here is quick to remind us that believing husbands have a calling as well. It's not just the wives. Each one of the married men here have fallen very much short in this task. The respect that your wife is called to give you is not because you or I have earned it, but because she is called by Christ to give it for your benefit and for his glory, which is an incredible thought. And so as your wife is called to put your needs above her own, you and I are called to do the same for our wives. We're called to put her needs above our own. We're called to give exceptional care for her vulnerabilities. We are commanded in verse 7 of our passage. Look with me there. 1 Peter 3, verse 7. We have this charge given to us as husbands for the sake of the gospel, 
for the benefit of our wives. Our wives. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Men, we are confronted with a question. Do I see my wife as a co-heir of the grace of life? Do I see my wife as God himself sees her, very precious in his sight? So do you treat your wife with the same tenderness and patience that your Savior has treated you with? You and I are subject to the same master, Christ, our heavenly husband. We know that Paul riffs on similar themes when he says in Ephesians 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, how far does your love and my love go for our wives? We are called to live with them in an understanding way, meaning we are, we are called to know our, our wives intimately. Who really is your wife as a person? What makes her tick? What are your wife's deepest needs? What are her struggles? How can you help her with those? What are the joys that she finds in life? See, once again, this is what separates Christian marriage from worldly marriage. The question is not, what can I get from my wife or my husband? How can my wife or my husband serve me? But how can I serve my wife? What am I called to do to lay down for her benefit? How can I sacrifice for my life that she may be drawn closer to Christ? Well, many of us husbands work outside the home, while our wives work at home taking care of the children, keeping the house in good order, and some work both in and out of the home. She exchanges, your, your wife changes countless diapers. She runs a taxi service for the children. And often she acts as executive chef of the family. And so we're reminded to live with her in an understanding way, with tenderness and grace, honoring her for that sacrifice which she has made daily. And Paul, once again, has another complimentary encouragement in Ephesians 5, verse 29. You and I are called to nourish our wives and to cherish them, just as Christ nourishes and cherishes his church. And so are we as careful and, and tender with our wives' spirits as we are protecting our cars, our hobbies, our time, that nest egg that we've been nursing for the past 10 years? Do we know our wives as well as we know the Tigers roster or the Lions football team, which is soon to play? Our brothers, our wives, are fellow heirs of grace. They're united to us with Christ, united to Christ with us. Yes, our wives certainly have a different role to fulfill, but they are equally recipients of grace. They are equally children of God and deserving of our devotion and our love. So as husbands and wives, we do not live out separately. No, we are one. We share that deepest of relationships as husbands and wives, our marriage to Christ, which takes primacy over our marriages. Our pursuit of excellence in our marriages or even in our everyday relationships, our desire as singles to one day have this relationship is for the glory of God's kingdom. Our pursuit of this excellence is for, for according to, to 1 Peter 2, verse 17, that 
It's for the, the congregation as a whole as well. We're called to love the brotherhood. And so even singles are not exempt from this. It's for the glory of God. And so together we are free people. We're servants of the Lord. And our love, for, and, our love and respect for each other and for others is in service of our Savior who has loved us so deeply. And notice that verse 7 ends by saying that we do all this for a very specific purpose. Peter says, so that our prayers may not be hindered. We share a devotion to the bridegroom of the church, Jesus Christ. We live together as his bride. We will be presented to him as that spotless bride. So if we claim to love God, but we refuse to love our spouses, we deceive ourselves. Strange idea to the world but it's a way of life for us living as exiles in this wicked age. And so congregation, as husbands and wives, as brothers and sisters, we walk together hand in hand. We are serving each other as we serve Christ. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. 1 Peter 2, verse 21. As we do this for the Lord's sake, the one who placed his needs who place your and my needs above his own. So my dear friends, let us together strive to serve the Lord through our marriages as we live out our marriage to Christ. Amen.